Welcome to The Learning Curve, a new podcast about all things education. My name is Bob Bowden with Choice Media, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kara Kendall of the Pioneer Institute. And Kara, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, Bob. So excited to be here for our inaugural show of The Learning Curve, our inaugural podcast. We've got a great podcast lined up for you today with the fantastic Gerard Robinson, currently of the Center for Advancing Opportunity. All right, let's get started with a few top stories, though, of the week before we are joined by our guest. Uh, first, a story that we picked from the Choice Media Newswire is uh, entitled, Some Teachers Push Back as Schools Expand Discipline Reforms. And what this story says, and Kara, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but it mentions how districts in California, like Oakland and San Diego, and also Broward County Public Schools in Florida, and other places are expanding the use of restorative justice and social emotional learning in in efforts to keep kids, in other words, in school and not suspended. Uh, It also mentions a a bill in California that uh, has passed the assembly that would virtually prohibit schools from expelling disruptive students. And we also had a story uh, from New York, a city, the other end of the country, that would curb suspensions longer than 20 days in basically what what they're calling a major expansion of social emotional learning and restorative justice across all city schools. And so what, uh, Kara, what is your, what are your thoughts when you hear this sort of? uh, Yeah, you know, Bob, two words come to mind. It's intent and implementation. So this is a case in, in, in so many cases where I think the intent is exactly right. And our, our guest today, Gerard Robinson, I'm sure, given his work, will speak to the idea that we know that schools historically and currently have um, suspended and inappropriately expelled and punished children of color at much higher rates than their um, than their white and oftentimes more affluent counterparts, right? So we know that. We know that we have issues um, in our classrooms. We know that we have issues in our school. But top-down reforms that seek to just... Um, tell schools you can't, you shouldn't, you must. And um, and when I say you must mean you must, for example, implement something called restorative justice. They simply don't work. And what we're seeing across the country is that the implementation is just incredibly off. So to tell teachers, um, as we have in many states, that, hey, you stop suspending kids after you've been using that as your primary discipline tool for a while. You stop suspending kids. We want to see suspension rates of zero and you're accountable for, for anything over that is to cause, in many cases, a chaotic school culture, right? So yeah. what we're trying to do is um, is we're, we're not addressing the root cause of a problem, which is systemic bias, right? And we're trying to do it in a top-down way that just isn't working. And not only is it um, oftentimes, you know, really horrible for teachers, it's even worse for students. So yeah. not to say that we should be pro-suspension or pro-expulsion, but what we need to do is actually understand what's going on in our schools and why is it that we are using these disciplinary tools that we've always sort of had at our disposal to inappropriately and disproportionately punish children of color. And and yeah. how can we help teachers and school administrators understand the why so that they can address it and become better teachers, right. become better, you know, um, Advocates for the children that they serve. That's my. Well, I have two. I have two reactions to that. It just stinks really. One, one is, you know, what if uh, a certain level of, uh, you know, lower level of discipline or or inf- disciplinary infractions is actually correlated to 
uh, poverty and that that actually drives – you could take skin color out of it completely and find – I don't think what I'm saying sounds so uh, insane – and find that actually low income and uh, families living in poverty, regardless of race, have uh, – are, are, uh, are correlated at least with uh, a higher level of disciplinary problems of the kids because of the challenges that poverty introduces. And that it could – what if it were that uh, that, that were the real driver – of those disciplinary problems. And if it's still, it could also be the case that the correct way to address those disciplinary problems would be uh, in a higher percentage of suspensions. And it's actually not related to skin color, but it, 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 in terms of a causality, it's simply correlated with skin color. And well, it may be by so, by artificially, and this is sort of to what you're saying, by artificially top down reducing the ability for those schools to suspend, it's actually worse for the other kids who are. Uh, of color, other minority kids who are well-behaved, who are sitting in those same classrooms with the kids who are acting out, and you actually end up causing more of a problem for them because of your uh, concern over the kids who are suspended. What about that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, you may have a point, Bob. I think it's really, really hard to ignore the ample research we have on the history of discrimination and discipline in schools against certain groups. And I think it's really hard to extract uh, skin color, to extract race from that conversation and make it just about poverty. I think we have ample data to show. But what I think it really needs to come do down we, do to we is have, has it teased, have you seen data that teases out? Have you seen data that teases out, uh, you know, poverty from race in that regard? I haven't. It seems to me it's all kind of jumbled together as well. It's just assumed, in other words, that it's a racist teacher who is acting acting in that way. I don't, and no, I'm not sure I that's just back against that, Bob. I don't think that. I think that we all have to recognize the implicit biases that we hold. I don't know if we're talking about racist teachers or if we're just talking about teachers who aren't that great. You know, I mean, I think a big problem in a lot of schools is that kids act out when they're bored. And it doesn't take much time to sit in a classroom and notice really quickly the kids who are bored. And I think that oftentimes what we're not doing in this country is educating teachers well, educating teachers about themselves, about their relationships with their students, but just helping them become better teachers. And I would put to you that in some of our highest performing schools, one of the reasons they don't have to use suspension and expulsion as a tool with any kid, regardless of race, regardless of, um, of socioeconomic status, is because when you walk into that school, you see a lot of darn good, exciting teaching happening. Yeah, well, that I think that uh, I would say both can be true. I don't certainly don't dispute that point. And uh, here's my second point. <laughs> We're going second too long, is it? My second point is that, it, uh, you know, I, I announced on a YouTube video a few years ago, Bob's Law about this, and everyone has, seen, has uh, profoundly ignored Bob's Law. Bob's Law is that any analysis of suspension or discipline on kids who receive the suspensions must also present data on the kids who don't receive the suspensions. In other words, teachers... I believe intuitively know that when one child is disrupting 25 others, that 25 others is a higher priority than the one. But the studies I've seen categorically, unabashedly present data about what's the best for that one kid being disciplined. What's best for him or her? They study that. They analyze what is best for him and her. And I never see the studies ask the question of, oh, gee, I wonder if we should look at what's best for the other 25. 
Who's now, Bob, my friend, maybe Bob's law will get more attention. If you could get some some funding to have that study happen, I'm right here for you. It so. is a direct, it is an unambiguous pri- prioritizing of the disruptive kids over the fates of the majority of the kids in these studies I've seen. And it's uh, it's almost forbidden heresy well, to say what I'm saying. Disruptive for, kids like go on to, over. as our friend Gerard's going to tell us, I'm sure, to be become part of the school to prison pipeline. And we can't ignore the fact that far too many of our schools and our systems are absolutely responsible for that. All right. Story number two, a new law requires Illinois schools to teach contributions uh, of gay, transgender people. It is, quote, it is past time children know the outcomes of LGBTQ plus pioneers, unquote. Uh, also, uh, that's that's Illinois. I said also New Jersey became the second state in the nation to require LGBT history teaching after California did it first. And so, uh, you know, uh, uh, to me, and I'll, uh, uh, I'll just, uh, you know, I would add this to the list of things to which parents will never agree. Parents will never agree what to say, exactly what to say about sex ed and at what age, or how to teach creationism versus evolution, or what to say about slavery and at what age. Or yeah, it depends on what parents you're talking about. <laughs> but no, I, I, I take your point. I take your point. But to this story, I personally say, hooray, let's do it. I am all for inclusive, diverse curricula. I am all for teaching all ch- all kids, um, not only that they are represented in our history, whoever they are, but also teaching all kids in all classrooms that they are not the only ones uh, represented in our history. I think these things are incredibly important. But again, and maybe this is more to your point, let's go back to the implementation. Because one of the things we know just from looking at the history of education in this country is that all too often when we have these top-down state mandates about what you have to teach, what is taught does not get taught well. And so what I would hate to see is that we're teaching about any one group or any people as just an overall stereotype, right? Like, so I'll go back to my own, um, I'm not going to tell you when, but you know, my days in elementary school when learning about Native Americans basically came down to learning about, you know, living in a teepee, which probably isn't even the appropriate word. But let's talk about uh, what it means to, to teach history well. I certainly uh, it can be done badly. I agree with that. And I would just say I I would say that, uh, you know, I'm not talking about my beliefs. I'm talking about I I believe my well, my my belief I am talking about is pluralism, is that someone has that this is not me, but someone has the right to be an evangelical Christian parent who honestly believes homosexuality or transgenderism is against their beliefs. But I, I have many friends who would say the public schools also have an obligation to tell their children that their parents are wrong and that the public schools essentially have an obligation to undermine those evangelical parents because these friends of mine would say and believe that they are wrong. And so the public schools should communicate to the children that your parents are wrong. And so that to me, so my principle is pluralism, is to not decide for the population. Yeah, through point taken. Schools. Point point taken. And I consider myself a, a a good pluralist as well. I hope. I think that you know the the overarching concern here is not that we exclude these teachings. It's that we have to recognize that no form of schooling, as my mentor Charlie Glenn would say, no form of schooling is neutral. And if schools can't teach an inclusive history and a, and you know in in a 
neutral way. Um, and then they're going to have to reckon with parents who, um, who to, to your opening point, uh, are not going to agree with this. And story number three, NYC school diversity panel, uh, rec- uh, diversity panel recommends scrapping gifted and talented program for better integration. And so this is, uh, Basically saying that the AP type courses, gifted and talented kind of courses, are overwhelmingly Asian and white in New York City, and that the uh, they had this commission to study this and say we should get rid of those programs to you know make it uh, less segregated. Chalkbee just publishing a story with the words backlash grows, and uh, in fact even the powerful teachers union uh, UFT in New York City president Michael Mulgrew said, "quote We do not support the elimination." of the city's gifted and talented programs. And so uh, this is kind of another one of those themes I'm seeing here, which is, to me, kind of a a growing divide between the woke left progressives, some of whom want a message, support teachers, empower teachers, pay them more, strengthen tenure, we're for teachers, and others also of the kind of progressive woke left who are saying those same teachers exhibit either racism in their disciplinary decisions or racism in their student choices for AP classes and gifted and talented promotion. And so that's kind of a a divide into, you know, in, in that world. And, and, and you know, there's, there's a cynical joke I tweeted uh, uh, about a week ago. It's education reform. What's the fastest way to reduce the achievement gap? And, and the answer is dumb down the smart kids. It almost seems like in a way this is like life imitating like <laughs> or cynicism. Or just stop testing. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Stop measuring. Right. So, so. I don't know. They want to get rid of gifted and talented and AP in New York City. What do you say to that? I say that this is just, listen, we all know that exam schools, gifted and talented programs, it is no surprise to anyone that it is, you know, wealthier elite parents who are more able to provide their kids with the social and cultural capital that they need to have an advantage to enter these programs. However, I don't believe that doing away with these programs is going to do away with the equity problems that we have in New York City or anywhere else. Until we start to address the underlying systemic issue, which is uh, parents are really restricted, especially if you are low income as to where you can send your kid to school. Parents do not have choice um, until we really start to address the underlying issues here. You can you can close as many programs as you want and you are going to make some people feel better and not at all solve the underlying problem. And we turn now to our Newsmaker interview with Gerard Robinson. We're incredibly excited to have as our inaugural guest on Learning Curve, Gerard Robinson, former president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, 14th Education Secretary for the Commonwealth of Virginia, 24th Education Commissioner of the great state of Florida, and if that weren't enough, a former American Enterprise Institute scholar, a Howard University graduate, a Harvard University graduate, and currently the executive director of the Center for Advancing Opportunity. Welcome, Gerard. Thank you very much for spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. No, glad to be with both of you. Okay. So let's begin. I guess I'll, I'll begin by asking about this group of yours, Center for Advancing Opportunity. And you had an event last spring, including one interesting panel I wanted to ask you about, which included formerly incarcerated panelists. So ex-cons, I guess would be another way to say that, uh, talking about their 
well, both their prison experiences and their educational experiences, uh, you know, people use the term school to prison pipeline, which I'm sure is not new to you or probably any of our listeners. Um, what are we doing wrong? So the Center for Advancing Opportunity is created through a partnership between the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, the Charles Koch Foundation and Koch uh, Industries. So. We were created in part to invest money through a $25.6 million grant to invest money into students and faculty at historically black colleges and universities throughout the country, along with other institutions, to find research-based solutions and to also identify barriers to three areas. You named one, uh, criminal justice, education is the second, and the third is entrepreneurship. From our perspective, when we talk about people who are incarcerated, I'm not shocked to know that nearly half of the people in some of our state prisons arrive without a high school diploma. Or for those who have some level of literacy, many of them do not read above the eighth grade level. It's not everyone, but it's enough to make me realize that what we call a criminal justice problem, and it is a problem, is as much a literacy problem and an education issue. Okay. So, so, so how many, so HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, how many are there in the U.S. HBCUs? There are 102 HBCUs across the country. Uh, the vast majority of them are the southern states. We have private uh, HBCUs, and they're represented by the United Negro College Fund, which turned 75 years old this year. The Third Good Marshall College Fund, again, where I sit, uh, we represent 47 uh, public uh, HBCUs. Just one more follow-up on that. Uh, so people have written about and studied certainly the paucity of black teachers in American schools and I guess the effect that it has, particularly on black boys, to have a role model, a, a black male role model especially uh, in these public schools. I'm guessing your, your work with HBCUs is to you know, encourage more people to think about a career in education when they're a student in an HBCU. Uh, is that right? Well, in fact, nearly 40% of the black teachers in the United States attended in HBCU. And the point you mentioned about having a student uh, and a teacher who look like each other is some of the work that Lindsay Burke, who uh, recently was with Urban Institute, she's now moving to uh, a university in North Carolina. Uh, She's part of a group who's taking a look at the work and identifying that if Gerard Robinson in elementary and middle school sees a Gerard Robinson as a teacher, that there has shown to be some academic impact long-term, more likely to think about finishing high school, more likely to go to college. But from the discipline standpoint, more likely not to automatically send to the office for suspension, which, of course, if you have two suspensions, that leads to a whole number of challenges related to the school to prison pipeline. Now, that in no way means that I don't want white, Asian, Native American or Hispanic or biracial teachers in front of our students. I want all good students uh, and all good uh, teachers to be in front of our students. So one of the great things about HBCUs is CAO works with HBCUs, but the work that we're doing is to impact the lives of all people, independent of race, color, class, or religion in the U.S. Okay, Kara, your witness. Yeah, Gerard, can you talk a little bit about um, what CAO and others are doing, given that the majority of teachers in the U.S. are still white and that in the majority of um, our schools that serve children of color, the teachers are still white. What are we doing beyond um, 
historically black colleges and universities, and you mentioned Dr. Burke's work, to um, educate the majority of the teaching workforce about the disciplinary issues you've mentioned and about the impacts of, of not having somebody that looks like you as a teacher? So there are programs such as the fellowship uh, which is created by uh, uh, Malik Sharik. He is a former teacher. In fact, he's a former principal of a school in Philadelphia. He's created a fellowship to, in fact, attract more black men into the teaching profession. Uh, he said himself as a teacher, he didn't see a lot of African-American men in front of him as a teacher. Once he went to college, he did not see a ton. He saw more, but decided to put that forward. So the fellowship is one project in place. Let's also take a look in, in, in my former life in Florida for example, um, we were the recipient of uh, money, uh, race to the top money. Uh, there was a portion of that money, I believe, $2.2 million that we invested into the University um, of Southern Florida. And uh, that money was used to attract black and Hispanic men to become middle school teachers. And so that was a program that was in place. I believe that some of the work that President Obama supported when he was president and now out of office through my brother's keeper, there are segments of the community who use that as a way of encouraging young boys to go into teaching. But you also have other nonprofit organizations uh, from Youth Bill. You also have um, America's Promise. You also have organizations in the charter school sector who are working to bring more in. So there's a lot of work, I think, taking place. I would also say that the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, two largest teacher organizations in the country, have their own internal program. You know, one that I'm particularly excited about is put together by Peggy uh, Brookins. Uh, she is the um, the president. As you probably know, some people are nationally board certified. And she's the president of the National Board for Certification of Teachers, or really it's actually called the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. And Peggy Brookins is the president. She's a former teacher from Florida. I just met with uh, her and maybe 50 people recently at an event they had in D.C. where they invited teachers of color who are national board certified or in the process of becoming national board certified to have a conversation with each other. So there are a lot of... Um, I would say nonprofit, university-based, school-based, and some even faith-based that are trying to do more in this work. That's, been, well, me, that's fantastic. What, oh, go ahead, Bob. Okay. <laughs> We're working this out. It's our first first podcast here, Gerard. Uh, I just I wanted us to pivot to the NAACP charter moratorium back in 2016. I wanted I just want to know what you think of that once once you first heard of it. And, and it almost seems to me like the like a moratorium is well, it's it's counterintuitive. Either either charter schools are a net positive or they're a net negative. A moratorium says we're going to freeze things right here, you know, top down, frozen in place, even though supply has not yet met demand. What was your reaction to that NAACP vote? In the week of August 20th, 2016, I published three articles uh, titled Unpacking the NAACP Charter Resolution, and that's an education week, and so people can take a look at it. So I, I really come at this in three ways. Number one, I started off by saying that there's no way as a black man I ever would have been Secretary of Education in Virginia or 
uh, Florida without the work of the NAACP. Number two, if anyone should critique where we're going with public education, it should be the NAACP because, in fact, they argued for equitable teacher funding uh, back in the 30s and the 40s. They're the ones who helped bring Brown v. Board of Education, which not only helped open the doors for black uh, uh, students, but has really changed what we think about public education. And third, they have been consistent since the 1990s that they do not support surely not vouchers, uh, but are very skeptical uh, of charter schools. So for me, I think they have the right to make this claim. But as you read my articles, I also say three things. Number one, if charter schools are in fact leading to the type of segregation that we saw or witnessed in 1954 and before, then someone forgot to tell the black college graduates who today are (laughs) charter school founders and teachers. Number two, if in fact charter schools are not helping advance the economic well-being of black people, then someone forgot to tell the Urban League. The Urban League is not only the founder of a number of charter schools, one that I had a chance to visit and do research on in Milwaukee, but they are pretty clear that it's part of a broader conversation about economic mobility and the role education should play. Third, if in fact charter schools are destroying uh, public education, someone forgot to tell the uh, 200 plus thousand teachers, many of them African-American, uh, some of them who grew up in homes uh, were members, uh, their parents were members of NAACP, who in fact have decided to teach in charter schools because they want to make a difference. And so I think they have uh, 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 more right than anyone else to critique it. I happen to have a different opinion. I think the moratorium is a safer way of saying they didn't want to go as hard against as they have for vouchers, tax credits, and others because there's more support. But they also are walking a fine line because a lot of their financial support uh, will come from uh, uh, left of center organizations, including AFT, NBA, who are the two largest funders of federal politicians, were primarily Democrats. So there's a financial aspect. And even when you hear the presidential candidates for the Democrats who are now saying, you know, moratorium, or abolishment of for-profit charters. They didn't say charters. They're being very clear to say for-profit just to say, we're okay with charters, but not for the for-profits. We're okay with charters, but let's not let them grow. So there's a very interesting nuance of money, philanthropy, and democratic politics that also play into this. Gerard, um, beyond charters and to your former work um, in in the great state of Florida, which has arguably opened up private school choice to more kids than than anywhere else, um, and in 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 very successful ways, and to your work today beyond charters, what do you see as the role of choice or opportunity generally in supporting those fragile communities that you're concerned with at CAO? We interviewed five thousand seven hundred and eighty four people in 47 states and took their findings and put it into the State of Opportunity in America report. You had a chance to uh, to read that report when you were on, when you attended our event in April. And, you know, a vast majority of them, we asked the question, do you think you have access to great public schools? Um, it was mixed, but when you looked at places like Fresno, California, Chicago, Illinois, Birmingham, Alabama, chosen those three cities for uh, their demography. You know, not the, I mean, the vast majority of them did not say we are, we have great schools. In fact, many of them thought they had a lot of challenging schools. And so what we want to do is to say that in the big picture, we want quality education that 
exists in traditional public schools. We have great traditional public schools. It, it exists with charter schools. I think the problem that we've allowed to, to, to manifest is that when we say choice, we only say charter. We never talk about magnet schools. We hardly ever talk about examination schools. We hardly ever talk about um, schools for the gifted. And many of those schools, in fact, require tests to get in. Charter schools do not. And so in many ways, charter schools have been be, are more democratic than some of our um, public choice programs, which preceded the creation of charters in the early 1990s. You know, in Boston, you have the Metco program. The Metco yes, program do. is a very successful program, which is uh, uh, taking kids from Boston and Springfield, uh, sending them out to suburban schools as well as some in Boston to give them a better opportunity. Your research and others who are affiliated with the Pioneer Institute have identified not only the academic gains uh, compared to their peers who are not in the program, but the number of those students who are getting jobs, going to college and going into the military. That's the second oldest voluntary program in the country, and we see some success. And in fact, that started late in the mid uh, 1960s by black parents who in fact were frustrated uh, and created a group called Project Exodus because the Boston public school system would not live up to the spirit of Brown, the openness of public education, and they took it into their own hands. So for me, I don't think any one model uh, is the best, but I don't believe equity means we have nothing for anyone. I believe that we open it up to everyone and let them choose. Gerard, I want to ask you, as we're on the cusp of an election year, about the politics you're seeing and, and I guess the politics I'm seeing. Having a conversation just last week with a friend of mine who is an educated person, a lawyer in New York City, who only knew of my school choice uh, advocacy and on, based on that asked if I was a Republican. And I, I said, why do you think I'm a Republican? And she said, because you support school choice. And I, of course, I answered, well, gee, you know, Barack Obama praised charter schools on the Fox News news channel uh California Governor Jerry Brown once considered, you know, Governor Moonbeam. He was so left of center, founded charter schools in Oakland. Uh, private school choice publicly supported in the last decade by both Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, you know, governors like Democrat Janet Napolitano, who as governor of Arizona signed voucher legislation. And yet somehow we've now reached a point where people associate school choice more with the Republican Party. And so what are you seeing in the election? Even just, by the way, this week, uh, uh, Joe Biden tweeting, throwing some shade on uh, on uh, uh, Betsy DeVos in a, in a tweet about how we don't need another four years of, of Betsy DeVos. Um, and yet we found him in 1997 on the Senate floor uh, asking the question publicly, is it not possible that giving poor kids a way out will force the public schools to improve? That The words of Joe Biden in 1997. So we're seeing, it looks to me, like a political shift in uh, the support of school choice by Democrats. At least that's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? I'm seeing the same thing. You think about Minnesota, um, first state in the country to create uh, a, a charter law. Um, it was uh, Senator uh, Young um, yes. who put that forward. She was a part of the Democratic uh, Progressive Party. You saw Gary Hart in California when he became the second state in the nation to have a charter law. He was a Democrat. You look at Tom Birmingham 
in Massachusetts, a strong Democrat. You look at Bill Clinton, who helped not only create what we now call Charter School Week, but also helped to create the Office of Charter Schools, which now provides millions of dollars in grants to charter schools. But go back to a, uh, a speech that he had given uh, to the NAACP, where he talked about Rosa Parks and the fact that she wanted to create a charter school and why, uh, and why he decided to support it. You know, some of the things you mentioned, I had a chance to uh, discuss in a January 18th, 2017 article in the 74. It's called Obama Redefined School Reform for Democrats. And when you look at the fact that the that uh, NEA uh, rated him lower than, let's say, other Democratic candidates for office, part of it is because he supported what they call teacher accountability and he supported charter schools and reform. And Arne Duncan, in fact, was not, uh, let's say, one of their best friends because he also called for reform efforts. So Charter schools in particular, and I would also say we can bring in vouchers, but let's stick with charters in particular. Charter schools for many years, in fact, was a bipartisan issue. I do believe the election of Donald Trump changed some of the dynamics in part because while people may have liked charter schools but hate Donald Trump, it became a point, well, if you like Donald Trump, then you must also now hate charters. And so people who were at least silent on the issue of vouchers because they saw vouchers maybe as a, as, a, as a kissing cousin, now see it as a deadly enemy and are now taking pot shots at private sector choice in ways they did not before. I think there's also um, an issue of trying to make a distinction between public and private. You know, charter schools are public, but are they truly public? They're quasi-public? Maybe not. So unfortunately, I think this is just another way, frankly, of trying to bring um, – a wedge between a public-private issue that's really more about a choice issue for uh, for families and educators, and then secondly, secondly, you know, let's look at politics. There were a hundred thousand black women in the state of Florida who voted for the Republican, uh, who didn't vote for the black candidate who would have made him the first black governor in a deep South state, surely for the state of Florida. Uh, part of the reason was that he wasn't a big fan of school choice. Um, I, you know, and so there's also some racial dynamics of saying, should we now make this a DNR issue because too many blacks are beginning to be swayed by the choice issue, holding their nose on the other parts, but moving forward. So I still believe there is enough common ground and camaraderie and common sense amongst enough Democrats and Republicans who can support it. I just wouldn't look to the national debate right now for where the future of choice is going. I look to the ground level and where parents are sending their children. I think we're over time with our friend Gerard. Uh, did you have a Carrie? Did you have a final thought for Gerard? No, no, no. Let's let him catch that train. Hopefully, we didn't make you too late, Gerard. Thank you. No, I want to thank uh, both of you not only for your commitment to parental choice, but for the fact that you're taking the hard shots and the pot shots from people who raise the questions about your political affiliation just because you support school choice. And the book that you've written about charter schools. In fact, I referenced that in some of my work. Thank you for the. Hard hard work you're doing, uh, you know, 50 years from now when people are raising the question, who wasn't for parental choice? They're not going to look at the people on this phone. Uh, they're going to look at actually, they're going to look at us as a way of trying to be a light in the darkness at a time when too many people think we're doing the wrong thing. But I'm looking 50 years ahead and realizing that those are going to be the ones with taxpayers into our system and making us a stronger nation with a stronger economy. He is the great Gerard Robinson from the Center for Advancing Opportunity. You can find out more 
by going to advancingopportunity.org. And Gerard, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Gerard. And our tweet of the week is from the Wall Street Journal opinion page that the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, is holding the children and charter schools hostage while he tries to squeeze more money from the state for his failing schools. So no surprise here. We've all read uh, about Providence in the news all summer that really, um, you know, damaging report, uh, but true report, revealing report from Johns Hopkins um, Institute on Education Policy detailing the terrible problems in Providence, Rhode Island, and the fact that so few kids are actually being educated. Achievement First, um, a very successful charter school network, is looking to open uh, another school in Rhode Island, looking to open a school in Providence. And the mayor is now giving us the same old song and dance that, oh, can't have another charter school because we're afraid it's going to drain money from our low-performing public schools that are not serving our kids anyway. And let me point out, I don't say low performing public schools, that all public schools are low performing. I say that we have evidence that in Providence, that is right now the case. And that's in your backyard. I just have an anecdote. I'm not going to, some people may know who I'm talking about. I'm not going to say who this is, but I have a friend who uh, started an education in Rhode Island and then later came to New York City. And I said, well, why did you like come, you know, to the charter movement in New York City? And he said, "Uh, I I wanted to go to a place where there was less corruption than Providence. (laughs) <laughs> wow, if New York City was your less corruption place. That's trouble. Um, so, uh, and now I want to give a, an, a commentary of the week. And for that, um, gee, how often is this going to happen? I'm quoting the New York Times. David Brooks, though, writing, when Elizabeth Warren agreed with Betsy DeVos. And uh, David Brooks uh, was, of course, quoting the now kind of famous 2003 book from Elizabeth Warren in which she praised the concept of private school choice and uh, said, well, Senator Warren, quote, fully funded vouchers would relieve parents from the terrible choice of leaving their kids in lousy schools (laughs) or bankrupting themselves to escape those schools. And as a Kara, as a Massachusetts uh, native yourself, uh, do people still talk about that up there? Or is it kind of forgotten that Elizabeth? Um, well, people generally don't like to talk about private school choice up here in Massachusetts, but those of us who do like to talk about it certainly do. And we wish that um, Senator Warren would not only, um, you know, come around to talk about our incredibly high performing charter schools that are serving so many students um, while we wish they could serve more, um, but that also we could revisit this idea that, yes, in fact, um, uh, private school vouchers or something like it, uh, education savings accounts, many, many different forms of private school choice could give so many parents here in the great state, the great commonwealth of Massachusetts, the options that they desire but do not currently have. So yeah, I like I the com- we worked in the word options. commonwealth earlier with Virginia, and you're now hitting it again on Massachusetts. I'm trying. trying yeah. To- yeah, you guys in Pennsylvania, you guys are holding that over the rest of the country, that whole Commonwealth <laughs> thing. It's like superiority. Uh, anyway, um, so again, thanks for, thanks for listening to the inaugural episode of The Learning Curve. Next week, we will be very excited to host Erica Smith of the Institute for Justice, and she is representing Kendra Espinoza in the case pending before the Supreme Court of the United States, Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. Again, thank you for listening. Please share and subscribe to this podcast. I'm Bob Bowden. And I'm Kara Cantel. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.